Good afternoon, everybody. This is Matt Bieber from the New Mexico Department of Health. Uh, nice to be back with you for our regularly scheduled COVID-19 update. Uh, we are, as usual, joined by our three principals, DOH Acting Secretary David Scrace, Dr. David Scrace, DOH Deputy Secretary, Dr. Laura Potahone, and DOH State Epidemiologist, Dr. Christine Ross. So as usual, they will provide their presentations followed by our Q&A session. And with that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Scrace and our principals. Hi, uh, thanks very much, Matt. Appreciate um, you pulling us all together again today. Thanks for everybody uh, who is viewing online through Facebook. And also thanks to everybody, all of our media folks, uh, reporters and and TV broadcasters, and I'm sure there are other names I don't know, but we're, it's always good to have you here. You always ask great questions. You always make us think, and we're looking forward to further dialogue today. If we could go to the next slide, please, uh, Brianna. Uh, this is today's epidemiology report after a slightly lower uh, number of cases over the past uh, <clears throat> uh, couple days in the weekend. We're back up to a much higher level, almost to 16% of the New Mexico population that's had a documented coronavirus with a positive test. We have 613 people in the hospital today. The good news is that's coming down a little bit. Uh, bad news um, is that the deaths uh, reported to DOH in the past 24 hours are 25. That's much higher than we normally see for a single Days count. I think most of you know we've been running about 50 deaths per week, uh, but uh, some of these are older, but not all of them. Uh, we're over 5,500 deaths in the state since the beginning of the pandemic. And in, in general, our uh, uh, mortality rate from COVID runs about, actually, it's more like 1.65 or 1.67 percent of cases uh, right now. Uh, and now I think we're going to, if we go to the next slide, uh, next we have Laura Parahone to give an update. There's still a ton of stuff happening uh, with respect to vaccines in the state and in the country, but it's time to stop uh, and have a little bit of a birthday celebration. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Laura. Okay, thank you so much. Yes, I'm super excited to share the happy anniversary for the COVID-19 vaccine. And also just want to thank all of you, all of New Mexico, for really hanging in with us and, um, and you know, being willing to, to get the vaccine and, and, and go with all the changes and new things that we're finding out. And, and yeah, the willingness to get vaccinated. Thank you and to help our, keep our community safe. We really want to um, highlight that New Mexico providers have administered 3,426,330 vaccines. And that is a huge accomplishment. Um, these are all the doses since December 15th of 2020. And really, thank you to all the providers in the states. And uh, we just want to say special appreciation for all those who administered 85,000 doses. I feel so privileged to be part of an amazing team um, in the New Mexico Department of Health, um, the public health team with the New Mexico National Guard and FEMA. Thank you, all of you out there. I know you're out there. Hopefully you're listening. Thank you for all you're doing. Over 480, 485,156 uh, vaccines given, so the top group. Then Walmart Pharmacy, thank you so much, followed by Walgreens, Presbyterian Healthcare Services, um, UNM Health, 
CVS Pharmacy and Indian Health Services, all of you and all those out there who um, are who contributed to giving the vaccine. We're so grateful for all your work. And, and we didn't think we'd be in this place with COVID right now, but because of you, you guys have saved lives and made a huge difference here in New Mexico. Next slide. Um, just a little reminder, and I think um, I think sometimes we, you know, as a parent, as people who are worried about our kids or even ourselves, um, just a little reminder that COVID-19 vaccines are amongst the safest in all history. Um, the safety um, profile just in the United States, over 500 million doses have been given uh, nationwide and worldwide millions and millions more. Um, the, this year of data has really shown us that the vaccines are safe and effective at preventing serious disease or death due to COVID. And I think that's just been, I think for those of us who were providers on the field all the year before, and we were always worried, like, were we going to get COVID, you know, when we're seeing patients um, or getting it anywhere just nearby, you know, to have the vaccine has been such a godsend and just such an amazing uh, development, right? This vaccine technology had been in development for years. Um, and then, you know, the processes didn't skip steps. They really did work to get data really quickly. And the government's funded vaccines to get the resources they needed. And so just, just really excited that we do have this important tool to help us keep fighting the pandemic. Um, next slide. Um, yeah, so New Mexico, once again, um, congratulations for your vaccination rates. Um, so 63.5% of all New Mexicans have been fully vaccinated. And here's a high, highlight milestone. 75% um, of New Mexicans 18 and over have been fully vaccinated. Over 50% of New Mexicans 12 to 17 year olds have been vaccinated fully and 10% of our five to 11 year olds. So just a shout out for that really good work of, of the whole you know state coming together, getting vaccinated to stay safe. Next slide. Um, this is really a great slide too. It just shows that like the little gray area shows that you know every week that it just it'll just go get more. It just takes us time to get all the data in. But um, just you know recently we've hit a milestone that we hadn't fit uh, hit since April. Just showing like yes, how much vaccine we're doing is, is almost the, as much as the time when we had, you know, a lot of demand. And so we're getting that new demand and we're really grateful for that. Next slide. Um, so here is just another reminder about our kids um, as we're coming into the holidays. The best way to keep your child safe from COVID-19 is really to vaccinate our children. Um, if, you know, children most of the time don't get serious illness, but they can. So it does protect them from getting a serious COVID. Um, keeping schools open is really important um, for, you know, for if kids are vaccinated, they're just not as likely to get sick. So they can keep on learning um, and can protect everyone around them, especially our elderly um, family members who don't have as much, you know, um, antibodies as other people do and often get sicker. And then it's uh, free, safe, and effective. One of the things we're trying to um, let people know is that just remember it really is free. If you go to a site, um, sometimes they will ask for your ID. 
or your, um, you know, or your insurance card, but that's just to get it, uh, get, you know, some reimbursement if people do have insurance. But if you don't, that's okay. You can go ahead, go in line. We're working hard on our team to actually, we've gotten some feedback that we need more signage in different languages. So we'll be working on that. But just a little reminder, I also want to share this in Spanish. So um, I'm just going to share to our Spanish listeners in Span Spanish. Um, so um, nuestro objetivo es asegurarnos de todos uh, niños pueden tener acceso gratis. Um, este vacuna, el mejor manera de, de cuidarse tu, su niño es para vacunarse su niño. Uh, no es muy común, pero los niños pueden enfermarse gravemente por COVID, entonces puede proteger a sus niños de enfermedades graves. También ayuda a mantener las escuelas abiertas que los niños pueden aprender. Y esto es muy importante porque queremos que los niños sigan yendo a escuela. Uh, ayuda también a proteger a nuestros ancianos y seres queridos. Las personas mayores de 65 años tienen un alto riesgo de enfermarse seriamente con COVID. Entonces, el grupo que tiene menos niños vacunados son los niños hispanos. Entonces, toma esta oportunidad de vacunarse a su niño. Es gratis, es seguro, es efectivo. Uh, si llega a la fila y alguien pide su identificación por un seguro, no necesita dar esta información. Es solamente para que poder, ¿verdad? Si tiene seguro, um, hacer una, um, hacer ayuda de, 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 de la seguro. Pero aún no tiene esta cosa, se vacunará. Entonces, nuestro objetivo es asegurar que todos pueden tener acceso gratis a la vacuna. Entonces, váyase a ayudar a sus niños, su familia a vacunarse. Okay, thank you. So, I just wanted to share in Spanish so that uh, we can reach out to some of our Spanish-speaking um, um, community today. Um, next slide. Um, so, this is great progress for uh, kids ages 5 to 11 and 12 to 15-year-olds. Um, so you can see that actually, um, we've actually, when you look at the 12 to 15 year old doses, the five to 11 year old doses is actually, um, actually gotten more than what we had at the same time. So just great job kids and parents out there. 22.4% of uh, New Mexicans five to 11 year olds have had at least one dose. Next slide. Um, just a little message for the holidays, um, protecting your loved ones this holiday season by getting a booster. Um, uh, Christine Ross um, will be sharing more about Omicron and the Delta as well. You know, we can protect ourselves with uh, getting an additional booster. Um, individuals and individuals 65 and older are at high risk from illness from COVID and compared to five to 17 year olds, um, they are two times more likely to get sick from COVID, 35 times more likely to get hospitalized, and 1,100 times more likely to die. So even though, you know, we think that we're just getting a booster for ourselves, we're also getting it for our families right now as we're gathering together as family. We want to see each other. This will really help a lot. Um, and like I said, maybe the 
the booster and getting the vaccine, um, you could probably sometimes still get a case of COVID, but it's going to be much more mild. And what the vaccines are really, really good at doing and continue to do is to prevent hospitalization, death, and getting really sick from COVID. So um, yeah, so just go out and get a booster. We have sites still for, for you to do that. Next slide. Um, here's our booster dose progress. So once again, every week we have about a 10% more increase of people getting the booster. So thank you so much for getting your boosters. Next slide. And protecting yourselves and your families. Um, among the United States, New Mexico actually ranks number 10 for percent of fully vaccinated people with their booster dose. So that's really, really great. Next slide. Um, one of the ways that the Department of Health and FEMA are working together to um, get more access to the vaccine is that we, like I shared last week, we have the mobile family vaccine buses arriving. They will be here next week on December 20th, starting to go out to every region to help administer the vaccine. So it's kind of looks like a vaccine tour bus. So it's kind of going to be like that. Um, maybe no singers, but hopefully you guys can bring some singing to it. Um, the New Mexico um, will receive four of those buses and we'll be able to start doing vaccine clinics all throughout the state of New Mexico. Next slide. And we're really grateful for our partners um, at FEMA for getting that. Um, if you're a church, a community organization, a neighborhood group, or any group that wants to get a mobile vaccine clinic, you can actually request our mobile vaccine clinic and bus at getvaxnewmexico.com. You'll get a little like uh, picture, a little form like this where you can fill it out. And then if you want to request promotional support, so let's say you want to get a bunch of flyers or things to say, yes, you know, come to our event, um, you can also go to bettertogethernewmexico.com and say, yes, I want a flyer that looks like this or a banner to promote your event. Um, we want to thank the city of Albuquerque, Albuquerque Public Schools, Sites in Santa Fe and Las Cruces for helping us get us sites. Um, you answered our call when we uh, you know, asked in the past few weeks about people helping out. And thanks for all you providers who also came on and, and helped out. So thank you. Next slide. Um, just trying to make sure that people, you know, know how to get the vaccine appointment again, vaccinenewmexico.org. Uh, we had COVID vaccine appointments available. Um, remember that flu is going around too, so you can get your flu shot at the same time. If you have concerns, once again, we're just asking you to like ask your provider or a trusted person if you have questions about the COVID vaccine. Next slide. And then the other option, too, is that the uh, federal government has a vaccines.gov where um, an, another chunk of vaccines can be found. And those are usually at your pharmacies like CVS, Walmart, Walgreens. You can go to vaccines.gov to find another site near you. Um, and then once again, get your flu at the same time. Next slide. And then, um, yeah, and then I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to our uh, COVID epidemiology update with uh, Christine Ross. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much, Laura. Um, hello, everybody. I'm, I'm uh, uh, happy to be here today to provide a COVID-19 epidemiology update. And as we typically do, I want to start with a national update. Uh, so in the United States, 
cases, hospitalizations, and deaths are rising. This is very important information uh, to consider as we head uh, towards uh, more holidays. So the current seven-day uh, daily average of cases is about 118,000 new cases uh, per day, and this is an increase from the last week. The current seven-day average of hospital admissions is about 7,800 a day, and this is up about 7.7%. And then the current seven-day average of daily deaths is about 1,100 per day, and this is up about 5%. Um, I also want to mention really tragically this week, it looks like we're going to hit our 800,000 mark or 800,000 uh, COVID-related deaths um, uh, this week. So the I want to draw your attention to the map on the left. Again, we typically show this slide. This, um, as the colors get darker, that depicts states with higher case rates. And you see the box around New Mexico because we continue to uh, see uh, high case rates uh, here in the state. The graph on the right hand of the slide shows the daily trend in the number of COVID-19 cases, and, and that's depicted by that red line. And as mentioned, um, you, can, you can follow that line uh, along and see that it is um, currently increasing. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. So from a national update, um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, New Mexico. So uh, this slide depicts our statewide epidemiology curve, uh, or what we call an epi curve for short. The seven-day rolling average of new cases is depicted by that black dotted line. Again, you can see the case rates are high in New Mexico, and we've seen a surge of cases, which began back in July, which seems like a quite a long time ago now. Um, and this coincided with the Delta variant becoming the dominant variant in New Mexico. Um, typically, we had been showing an area of, of these graphs that were uh, grayed out, uh, which had depicted um, uh, the lag period or a period of time where we are still collecting data and therefore we expect uh, to um, receive more data. And typically, we had been showing those, but now we're going to be um, putting a uh, we're going to be leaving those off the slide so as not to confuse anybody. Um, one thing I want to note is, is that we had been um, uh, hoping that we were seeing a deceleration in the growth in, in new cases, um, but that doesn't appear to be the case. And we certainly worry about our high case rates, uh, particularly as we, we head into the holiday season. So let's go to next slide. And this, again, just goes along with the previous slide. This is just a blow up of that black dotted line that I just showed you on our statewide epi curve. So this is plotting cases uh, each day um, uh, over time. And the black dotted line is that seven day rolling average. And you can see how we've, we've somewhat sat at this high plateau, uh, very close to about 1,500 new cases uh, a day. And we recently went, went over that that average. 
again, uh, a very high number um, uh, that we certainly don't want to see continue as this is uh, clearly impacting our healthcare system across the state. Um, next slide. So this is our level of community transmission slide. And again, this is one we show weekly and, and this is constructed by um, uh, using two metrics and this is county level data. And this is slightly adapted from a CDC version that you can find on the CDC COVID tracker uh, page as well. And so we look at the total number of new cases per 100,000 people per day over the prior two week period and you can see the dates that are on the slide. So this is for the period November 30th through December 13th. And then we also look at the percentage of tests conducted that were, were found to be positive. So I think the take home message here, which is depicted by the red color across the state is we, we continue to see high levels of community transmission of the virus that causes COVID-19 uh, across the state. And, and what do I mean by community transmission? So what we mean is typically, this typically means that people are being exposed and infected with the virus across a variety of settings and situations. And so it, we can't typically easily pinpoint where they acquired their infection. And it's very difficult to, to connect large number of cases together because the, the number of cases is so high and the virus is being transmitted in a variety of situations and settings. Uh, next slide. Okay, so we're going to jump to a slide on uh, the Omicron variant, and I, I am sure uh, most uh, listeners uh, uh, tuning in are aware that this was classified as a new variant of concern uh, by the World Health Organization shortly after Thanksgiving, uh, or right around Thanksgiving on November 26th, and also uh, classified as a, a variant of concern by the United States on November 30th. Um, on December 1st, uh, the first case uh, of this variant was identified in the United States. And as of the 14th, uh, it had been identified in over uh, 30 states or a total of 34 as depicted on that map there. Um, and um, it, it appears to be um, this situation is rapidly evolving and most likely the data on the left hand side is, is already out of date as more states are identifying uh, this variant. So I want to take a little bit of time and talk about the table on the right, which we have um, shared before. And you see a lot of question marks about this variant uh, because a lot of questions uh, still remain. Uh, though emerging uh, information, uh, we learn about it daily and we expect to answer many of these questions over the next few weeks, but we still don't have definitive answers to share today. But I'd like to go through through a little bit about what we do know. So is, it, is this variant detected by routine testing? Yes. So the diagnostic accuracy of our routinely used tests, our PCR tests and our antigen tests or our rapid tests, they don't appear to be impacted by this variant. Uh, so that's good news. Well, what's the spread rate? Still unknown. But this variant likely does spread more easily than the original uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, but it's not quite clear as compared to Delta, does it spread uh, more easily? 
though it certainly does appear to have a growth advantage. So this, um, the variant is, is, is rising uh, rapidly here in America. So initially cases were mostly associated with travel. And now uh, as each day goes by, there has been clusters of cases and, uh, that are now being uh, increasingly uh, reported. So Omicron accounted for 2.9% of sequenced samples across the country this week. And this is compared to the previous week where it was only 0.4%. Uh, so we really, uh, so that was a rapid rise. So we expect over the next several weeks, we're going to continue to see this rise. Um, one region in particular I want to mention uh, in the region um, uh, of the United States uh, that includes New York and New Jersey, the percentage has already re uh, reached around 13%. So 13% of all the cases sequenced are um, the Omicron variant. So next, uh, clinical severity. So data on clinical severity really remains limited. The initial cases in the United States um, uh, recently published, uh, the CDC recently published what they call an MMWR on the initial 40 plus cases here in the, in the United States. Um, most cases, again, this is uh, uh, really based on limited data, uh, have appeared to be mild, uh, though many of those cases were among uh, vaccinated individuals. So certainly we, we think the vaccine is, is doing what it should do, which is prevent se severe illness and death. But again, more we, we need more data on clinical severity of this variant, and we really can't say definitively at this time, does it cause uh, milder or more severe disease as compared to prior um, variants. The next big question is um, the any resistance uh, to the vaccine. There is preliminary data that suggests that there may be reduced vaccine efficacy and effectiveness against infection and transmission associated with Omicron, as well as an increased risk of reinfection. But most importantly, the data that we have available right now suggests the vaccines are holding steady and are quite prote remain protective against severe illness and death. Um, and I think that there's some really interesting laboratory-based data um, where we've looked at folks that we've looked at um, the scenario where um, uh, an individual has received a, a booster shot and there's even a higher level of protection. And so at this point in time, it's very, very important uh, to get, uh, get out and get your booster shot if you, if you are eligible and, have, and if you haven't already done it. Um, so I want to just mention uh, in summary, we do have the tools to fight this variant. Again, vaccines remain the best public health measure we have to protect people um, from COVID-19, including this variant. Vaccines also slow the transmission and it reduces the likelihood that even more variants will emerge. And again, I just can't say it enough that all of the available data suggests that these vaccines are highly effective at preventing severe illness, including hospitalization and death. 
In addition, we know that masks uh, are a very important tool. We know that masks uh, protect us against all variants. So please wear a well-fitting mask, especially when indoors in public settings, and especially in settings where the level of com community transmission is high, which currently is across the entire state of New Mexico. And then lastly, I want to mention that testing is really important. And I think we might have a slide on testing. Is that next slide? Oh, okay. So we're going to jump to this to just mention that um, testing is a really important tool. Um, and they can tell you if you're currently infected um, with COVID-19. So if you have symptoms um, listed there on the slide, I think most people are familiar, cough, fever, uh, chills, any shortness of breath, uh, muscle ache, headache, uh, um, sore throat, please seek a COVID-19, um, uh, please seek a test. Uh, it's very difficult to, um, to discern just based on symptoms, whether this could be influenza, could this be COVID-19, could this be RSV, um, uh, any number of respiratory pathogens cause similar symptoms. So you need to seek a test. Um, if you don't have symptoms, but you were in close contact with someone uh, infected with the virus, please seek a test. Regardless of your vaccination status, please seek a test. And then you also see on the slide where we're suggesting also people who are asymptomatic, but that work in a high risk uh, setting such as a, a long-term care facility, a detention center, correctional facility. We want to continue this surveillance testing or regular testing, whether you have, uh, um, regardless of, of, of symptoms. So folks that are asymptomatic continue getting those surveillance tests. And then um, next slide. And then we said we wanted to just uh, reemphasize scheduling a test from your computer or phone is easy. Uh, so please um, seek out a, a test site uh, um, through uh, findatestnewmexico.org. Um, we're suggesting for that surveillance testing that I just talked about using Vault or Curative. And then there's a number of um, possibilities uh, for testing, whether it's hospitals, public health offices, pharmacies, doctor's offices, et cetera. And then we do wanna mention the increasing availability of over-the-counter rapid testings. So I think I mentioned this last week, there is gonna be, um, we expect to see increasing availability of over-the-counter tests or what some people called home tests, uh, um, self-testing. Um, and if, if you um, are worried about an exposure, if you have symptoms, please seek out um, one of these over-the-counter tests if you're not able to make a testing appointment uh, in another fashion. And then I think I did skip one slide. Um, um, there we go. Just wanted to reemphasize that currently the um, surveillance that we conduct in the state, we do genomic uh, surveillance. We have a network of labs uh, together with the CDC uh, our state public health lab, uh, commercial labs, academic centers, all uh, are part of our network or our surveillance program. And what we see currently continues to be Delta. So the current surge that we have been managing since uh, July continues to be caused by this highly contagious uh, Delta variant. Though, as I mentioned, 
um, uh, Omicron is is uh, increasing in proportion across the United States. We did report out recently our first case that was identified here in the state. We do expect that to increase. Uh, but again, we do have the tools to fight Omicron in all variants, which I've already reviewed. So I'm going to go ahead and um, um, uh, turn this over to uh, David at this point in time. Secretary Scrace. Thanks, Dr. Ross or Christine. Uh, appreciate all the great data we've seen already today. I'm going to talk about a couple things uh, like I usually do vaccine breakthrough, hospitalizations, a few other uh, <clears throat> things in the news about how we can better take care of ourselves and then we'll open it up for questions. So on vaccine breakthrough, I think you're all now probably seeking out this report uh, a little better than last week with 28% of cases, a little lower than last week, being an unvaccinated people still, uh, no question that the uh, unvaccinated individuals continue to drive the pandemic and to drive uh, the challenges in particular that we're seeing in our hospitals, uh, which you can see there, 18.8% vaccinated people uh, in the hospital with COVID, but 81, a little over 81% unvaccinated. And then lastly, deaths, sadly, 81.6% occurring in uh, vaccinated, unvaccinated individuals less than 20% in uh, vaccinated ones. And just a reminder, according to the data we looked at that got us to really pushing harder on the boosters, uh, <clears throat> we know now that uh, the risk of a vaccine breakthrough case, if you've completed your vaccine series prior to six ones, so basically six months ago, uh, is uh, four times higher than if you completed your vaccine series after six one. It goes both of those are much, much, much lower than your risk of getting COVID if you're unvaccinated. Uh, and so, uh, you, as you can see from the 72-28% split. Next slide, uh, trying to give you a little view into the Zepi report, but you can look at it yourself, the vaccine report on the epidemiology page. But, you know, it's interesting, since the beginning of the pandemic, the groups that are most likely to have a vaccine breakthrough, and this is your chances by your age band, this is not number of cases per se, it's your chances, basically. You can see that uh, the 18 to 24, the 25 to 39, and the 40 to 59 are the top three groups of the last four weeks. It's been the 25 to 39, the 40 to 49, and the 50 to 64. But a lot of people say to me, well, isn't it just older people getting these vaccine breakthrough cases? The answer is no. It's not, and the fact is that the, the majority are actually occurring in this middle age group. And I like to kind of think of it as 18 to 64, where a significantly higher risk of vaccine breakthrough occurs there. So yeah, as Brianna is showing you there. So uh, that's where we're at today. And I think we anticipate being able to add a group of uh, <clears throat> in data about vaccine breakthrough um, in those who've been had a booster shot uh, in the very near future, hopefully by the end of the year, early next year. Next slide. <clears throat> Hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, there is a little bit of good news. We've seen a drop in people in the hospital with COVID by over 100. Um, unfortunately, though, 
Our hospitals are not feeling any let up just yet. Uh, a lot of the folks that remain in the hospital are those who are the sickest. And so this drop in cases has been people mainly in the hospital for short stays and then going back home again. So we're still, we're not showing the graphs today, but still way up in the crisis standards of care uh, zone for our hospitals. And I'll show you a little bit more about that in a minute. Next slide, but maybe there's some good news. Still very tight, 19 beds, ICU beds across the state for COVID patients. And that was in single digits last week. So we have 10 beds more, but still very, very tight. And many folks who go to an emergency room uh, with like a heart attack or other serious illness that normally would be treated in the ICU find themselves sitting in the emergency room, sometimes for days before they can get that intensive care treatment just because our beds are so full. Again, we could fix this overnight if everyone in the state were vaccinated. And now those of you who already had your primary series, if you get that vaccine up to date by getting a booster as well. Next slide, please. Uh, we are now providing more help. Last week, the state had brought in 210 individuals in healthcare professions across the state and hospitals. Uh, you can see now that the larger hospitals are also asking for help. There's, you know, so you see Presbyterian, you see Loveless, uh, UNM also has a request in that we're working on. So we're doing the best we can. Uh, we do get FEMA reimbursement for this. There's some fairly extensive paperwork uh, to get this reimbursement. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes that can be frustrating to the hospitals and even to our own staff by how extensive this paperwork is. But as I, my motto is, you know, free money should be hard to get. If it was easy to get free money from the federal government, we wouldn't have a federal government anymore. So we are going through the paces. We are learning the ropes. We are teaching it to the hospitals. Extensive documentation is required about their need, but given the situation we're in in our state, uh, we're able to assist the hospitals and very, very few folks are having trouble. The big change in this map is the bump in, in, in uh, Bernalillo County with our Albuquerque hospitals now receiving, oh gosh, that's almost, almost a third of the uh, state resources, maybe a little over the third of the state resources we're providing. Ne uh, next slide. Uh, deaths uh, plateauing at a higher rate. You know, uh, unfortunately we get death certificates much later from other states. Those, that plateau, Brianna, that you can point to between September 20th and, and maybe mid-November, a little further to your right, please. You have a very, very tiny cursor that's not moving on my screen. But if you point out the 920 and on, there's a flat area there that used to be in the 30s, then the 40s. Now it's in the 50s here, and so and even 60s. So we do, particularly from other states, get late death certificates, and we add those in on the date of death. Every death is a tragedy. Uh, now, you know, obviously, every, uh, many, many New Mexico families are affected, and many, many of us now have uh, friends, coworkers who have died from coronavirus. Uh, next slide. Treatments continuing to uh, do well. I'm just showing the monoclonal antibodies. Our hospitals have done a great job from the beginning treating almost everyone with remdesivir who crosses their doors and gets admitted with coronavirus. But we're still holding up our end on the monoclonal antibodies. One thing to note, if 
uh, is that uh, the Regeneron supply was kind of dwindling. We It's the middle bluish colored bar. It was 801, it dropped to 670, 526. It's the easiest one to use. And so everybody, if they had their choice, would use 100% Regeneron. And our folks in Washington and through the governor's office of work to get us a little bit more supply on that. I think our state does well in procuring these resources because we uh, do a good job using them. And that's the secret to getting more citropramab and the BAM-Eddy combinations uh, being adopted by more facilities. We're very, very grateful to those facilities because it's more work to give the other meds harder to mix. But on the next slide, you can see that a number of our statewide hospitals, again, doing a great job across the state. We've given you everybody whose system uh, is giving more than 50 or more doses. And this actual rural, you know, there's some rural areas here that are really important. That rural distribution of MAB is something we're considering as we figure out who to give the oral agents that may be coming out uh, soon. And uh, we can talk about that in the q and I don't have slides on that today. The PrEP, the preventive program for immunocompromised patients should be available soon, and that will be distributed to specialists uh, to, pres to prescribe to immunosuppressed patients. We're still waiting for the Pfizer product that actually does treat effectively uh, COVID early on within the first five days, prevents hospitalization and death. And lastly, we're also waiting for a Merck product, and the most recent data is uh, such that I'm told that the likelihood of it being approved even has dropped uh, dramatically. But we'll let you know when these uh, medications become available, where they're available. Right now, when the oral agents become available for treatment of a new COVID case that's symptomatic, we're prioritizing those areas that don't have MAB availability, but gradually as the supply chain kicks in and we get more and more doses, we'll be able to treat people all over the state. I believe the initial allocation is around 320 courses of treatment, which is, I mean, if you've been following the numbers, you know it's like 25% of a single day, and that 320 courses of treatment is supposed to last us a week. So now we're down to the maximum we'd be treating about 3% of cases a day. So it'll be a slow start, but it could be a very, very important uh, tool uh, or weapon even, if you will, in the fight against COVID going forward as production increases and the data, if the data holds up on reduction of hospitalization and death. Next slide, please. Uh, so this is a science slide. It's very technical. I apologize. It's the kind of stuff we show to doctors, but I thought it was kind of interesting. My blood pressure actually went way up uh, last year as part of the pandemic to the point that I had to uh, take, start taking medication for it. Not that my job is stressful in any way, I'm not saying that, but it turns out that the average blood pressure of everyone in the United States has gone up. Now it's not going up a lot. It's gone up like one to two and a half millimeters of mercury. So like if your blood pressure is 120 over 80, now it might be like, I don't know, 122 over 82. So it's not what we would call a clinically significant increase, but it's the very first sort of report on global changes or, uh, you know, this is, it happens to be in U.S. adults, but we're actually seeing a change. So 
uh, my conclusion is we're all more stressed. Uh, uh, we're all more tense. We're all trying to figure out how to live in the middle of a pandemic. And uh, and some of us are frustrated with uh, <clears throat> not wanting to be vaccinated. And some of us are frustrated with the people who don't want to be vaccinated. And, and uh, there's people who don't want to wear masks and people who wish they would, and et cetera, et cetera. And so that's stressful. And so this um, this slide really is to remind everybody to not delay your health care. One thing I'm proud of is I've kept up with all my regular stuff. And, you know, I had a dental appointment earlier this week. I've got a eye doctor appointment. I do need a new prescription for my contact lenses because it's hard. It's getting harder to read the fine print on these slides. But please, if you're one of those people um, <clears throat> sitting around who's going to wait till the pandemic's over, to get back and reconnect with your healthcare, that will be a huge mistake. And we're finding the people who aren't getting regular healthcare are at least in general, much more likely to end up in the hospital with complications of their underlying disease, be it diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, whatever. So please take care of yourselves. It's like step one in helping manage the pandemic. Then you can take care of your family and then you can help with your extended family and your community and your coworkers and the like. Next slide, please. So uh, I think we all may know that Be Well New Mexico is the health insurance exchange in the state. About 40,000 New Mexicans are currently enrolled in Be Well New Mexico, and uh, there is open enrollment. The reason we put this slide in is not that we're starting to sell advertising space, uh, although this is a quasi-government entity, but because we do know that as the pandemic starts to decline, uh, that the government is looking at changes to the approach with Medicaid. We have a, over 100,000 more people on Medicaid than we did before the start of the pandemic. And we think a decent percent of those will start rolling off depending on legislation currently being uh, managed by the uh, US Senate. It's been passed by the House of Representatives. And so I just wanted to highlight to people that we have systems set up for those folks in HSD and in Medicaid programs sponsored by the state, if the federal rules change and you uh, find you no longer have Medicaid, we have a system set up to automatically transfer you, uh, do that income testing that we do, and make sure you get insured uh, with Be Well New Mexico. Of course, you have lots of other private insurance options, but this one does specifically provide premium support and assistance to people with lower incomes up to 300 to 400% of the federal poverty limit. I don't have that table memorized, but I know there that this might be a better option, particularly for people who were on Medicaid and now uh, are making a little bit more money. So I wanted to put this up here, make sure uh, you were aware uh, <clears throat> that this was there. Open enrollment ends on the 15th. And so if you are uninsured, this might be a good time to take a look and go online and see what uh, bewellnewmexico.com has to offer. And you can see the website and the phone number there. And hopefully you've already copied them down. All right, next slide, please, Brianna. Uh, you know, I want to thank you, uh, all the businesses who are taking special precautions to make their businesses and their entertainment venues and their centers really, really safe. So I'm up here at these press conferences all the time talking about you know, uh, learning to live with COVID and how we all need to learn to live with COVID. And well, there's a part of me that would just rather 
work at home and, and, you know, do these press conferences from home like I used to. Now I'm in my DOH office today and just stay indoors and never go to a re- restaurant indoors again or any events. I do feel some obligation to all of you to be doing my own experimenting and trying out learning to live with COVID. So in our family, uh, because our next door neighbor is uh, one of the singers in the New Mexico Gay Men's Chorus, we have been intending that concert. Their Christmas concert is a Christmas tradition for, gosh, 10 to 15 years, a really long time. Last year, they didn't have it. They did it online. It was a miracle of technology, I got to tell you, but they they pulled it off. And so <clears throat> this year, they decided to do it again. And again, this is not necessarily an advertisement for the New Mexico Gay Men's Chorus, but the holiday concert actually is a delight. But if you look really closely and squint or rub your nose against your computer screen, you can see like that the whole chorus has a mask on, right? And then if you look really closely, and I don't think you can see this, but everyone in the orchestra that's not playing a wind instrument, so you can see the drummer way over to the left, the percussion people on the left, the other left, Brianna, you can see them, uh, that guy has a mask on, and then the violins, all the, all the stringed instruments have masks on. So let me tell you how they worked it. When you got the tickets, they warned you, you have to show proof of your vaccine or bring a recent test. Uh, we had our vaccine cards with us on our phones. We showed them that, they put on a wristband. Then we went inside. The tickets were all electronic as well. And I know that doesn't always work for everybody, but it they had an alternative for people that didn't. Uh, they went, we went in and we showed our phone, they scanned our tickets. We didn't have to touch paper or uh, anything like that. We went to our seats. The auditorium was full. Uh, everyone was masked and there were repeated warnings throughout the whole thing. And I got to tell you, like, it was very strange for me being in an auditorium full of people. This was the Highland Theater on Central uh, near San Mateo in Albuquerque. But I thought I'll definitely do this again. I feel like they're taking really good care to be safe. They're doing just about everything they can and still have a concert. The soloists, when they got up, they didn't wear masks, but everybody else in the room was. And so I think we all ought to be thinking, those of us who own businesses or operate practices or establishments or restaurants, you know, what are those things we can do to learn to live with COVID better? We had COVID safe practices in the past. I dust those off, take a look at those. But you know, a reporter asked me just before this press conference, what are the next two years going to look like? And I do think it's really, we're not going to get back to the old normal anytime soon. So we need to do like this organization did and really create a new normal so we can enjoy things like for our family was a huge Christmas tradition that we'd had to give up last year. So this is just uh, food for thought to spark thinking but I think that rather than having the state telling everyone they have to do this, we'd love to see local communities, cities, and individual businesses and groups like this uh, take up the cause and, and operate really COVID-safe venues for folks where you know everyone has a mask and vaccination or recent testing is required. Uh, and some reporter will, gonna, will ask me, does the state at the present time have plans to just order this? And the answer is no. So we'll save that question. Next slide, please. <clears throat> and then we're done here with the slides. We'll get to the Q&A. Uh, you know, the pandemic isn't over. Please get vaccinated. 
You know, the booster is super important right now. I think our data is showing in New Mexico. So please get out, get that vaccine. If you uh, if you think you have COVID-19, as Christine said, please uh, get vaccinated. Sorry, well, no, don't. I, that was wrong. If you think you might have COVID-19 or a reason to suspect you're exposed, get tested. Uh, if you do have COVID, you have a positive test, get antibody treatment, particularly, uh, and this is for people with uh, risk factors, which just to remind everybody again, is, uh, <clears throat> is uh, you know, over the age of 64, obesity or any high risk condition. You know, we are, if you talk to intensive unit, sorry, if you talk to intensive care unit, doctors, what they will tell you is COVID really seems to go after obese people. And so no judging here about people's weight. Uh, there's lots of reasons why people are overweight, medical, psychological, and others. So no judgment, but in particular, if you're overweight, and you get COVID, do not waste a minute. Uh, get online, uh, call your doctor, call your provider, uh, get scheduled for monoclonal antibody treatment. And then all the other things we need to do, keeping our distance, uh, washing our hands, getting preventative health care, and, and that indoor masking, it's still a public health rule in New Mexico. And, and I, you may have noticed that other uh, municipalities and states, I noticed California went back online with a, a mask mandate statewide yesterday as well. So that still remains important. It doesn't prevent people 100% of the time of getting COVID, but it reduces risk if it's a tight fitting, properly worn mask by 50%. So with that, I'm gonna turn it back to you, Matt, to guide us through our reporter's questions. And we're happy to answer any question you have today that we know the answer to. Great, Dr. Scrace, thank you so much. Uh, the first well, let me just remind our, our attendees of the rules of the road here. Uh, as usual, we'll use the raise your hand system here in Zoom. So if you have a question, please use that Zoom feature, raise your hand. We'll go through a full full round of questions, then we'll lower everybody's hands, and then we'll ask for a, a second round of questions and folks can raise them once again. Um, if for whatever reason you're having uh, challenges with your technology, with your audio, uh, you're welcome to drop a question in the chat and I can ask it for you. Uh, and in fact, I think we'll start with one of those we have a question from uh, Bruce Weatherby. And the question is uh, surrounding the potential need for um, a school of public health here in New Mexico. Evidently, a couple of days ago, uh, several uh, New Mexico state senators uh, supported a plan for, for doing so. And so the, Bruce's question is, uh, does such a plan to create and equip a school of public health here in New Mexico fit within the identified long-term needs of the Lujan Grisham administration? Okay, so uh, Bruce, great question. Uh, thank you for asking it. I had a, a question in the chat for my colleagues just to make sure they all had public health degrees. And I'm pretty sure they do, but um, I do. Uh, and Laura does and Christine does. So we know well the value of the School of Public Health. And in the long run, uh, <clears throat> you know, when, it, when we look at the doctor shortage, we're creating new, uh, new uh, primary care slots for training in the state. If people come to New Mexico, they live here, they're more likely to stay. So from a recruiting point of view, there may be advantages. I have a rule about commenting on bills. And the rule is I don't ever comment on a bill ever that I haven't completely read. So, and I haven't completely read this one, Bruce, but it's a great question. My understanding is that it was tabled already. Uh, we'll come back in the regular session 
uh, all of the agencies, and in particular DOH and HSD, where uh, and probably higher ed, those agencies will, uh, when that bill is reintroduced, uh, will do a very thorough, detailed economic analysis of the plan and give feedback. We send that to the governor's office, to the legislative finance committee, and then those documents are used for policy. So uh, despite the three of us being 100% panelists having uh, graduated from schools of public health, we do, uh, uh, we do uh, probably need to wait till we do that full analysis. I know this is supported for uh, by a former uh, public, uh, public, sorry, Department of Health Secretary, who I know well and love very much. And so, but we'll do that analysis. Um, we'll look to see what the benefit would be to the state, which will be contingent on the sponsors of the bill to make that case. And then we'll weigh in then. So I know that you're not getting a direct answer to your question. I don't think the administration has really had a chance to evaluate it just yet, but we will definitely do it uh, when it comes up at the regular session. Thanks. Thanks so much, Dr. Scrace. Uh, next, we'll turn to Steve Edmondson, followed by Julia Goldberg, followed by Jared Edenreck. Steve, you are unmuted. Please feel free to ask a question. All right, you, uh, you can hear me? Yes, okay, sir. very yes. good. Thank you. Thank you all for doing this. Uh, Dr. Scrace, you mentioned the uh, kind of, the, I guess it's the case fatality rates, what you call it, it's 1.65%. I went back and looked at my stats in March, it was 2.05%. So it, it seems to have come down. Do you all keep uh, like for the last, say, three months, do you have a indication of what that uh, case fatality rate is it still coming down? Because at the beginning, it was much higher. I look back to uh, July 31st of 2020, it was like 3.1%. So we've gotten better at treating the cases, I think, and, and that sort of thing. But is that continuing to go down? And do you have any kind of stats for like the last, say, month or three months to show, you know, what it is there? And the other one, one more quick thing related to that is, can you give the case fatality rates for the, say, over 65 as compared to zero to 17? Thank you. Uh, so great question. And uh, I appreciate you bringing it up. It's That's like a really good question. And in fact, Christine and I have been talking about this for the past couple months about doing a trend chart on mortality rate. We haven't talked about a trend chart for mortality for my age group just yet. But uh, I think uh, what I've been doing is looking at the hospitalization report and looking at the mortality report there, and then doing the same calculation than you are. And I am seeing the same thing. Uh, I think though that, I think some of it is we're getting better at treating COVID. I think, remember, if you get MAB, uh, a monoclonal antibody treatment, uh, your chances of uh, hospitalization and death are dramatically lower, 75% lower. So I think pre-hospital treatments are, are part of it. I think uh, fast turnaround times with testing helps because we identify cases earlier and then we can get treatment for those. I think in-hospital treatments are getting better and how we're are treating folks, we're innovating a lot less people, putting less people on ventilators. Our delivery system's done a fantastic job figuring that out. We're giving Regeneron to almost, I'm sorry, I misspoke, Remdesivir to almost 100% of people who uh, end up in the hospital. So all those things are good. I personally think though, 
that some of what we're seeing in the downhill trend is the transition in the demographics of cases from the beginning of the pandemic to now. And uh, I think I showed you that demographic on vaccine breakthrough cases, which is just breakthrough cases, but it's really a bell-shaped curve now. When we started the pandemic, uh, there were a lot, a much higher percentage of older individuals. Um, and I, I use that term very, very carefully now. Uh, seniors, a much higher percent, and that's come way down. Seniors got smart. They lined up, got vaccinated immediately. They're hiding out in their homes. They, they, they're being way more careful probably than the rest of us put together. And so I think that, the, that you can have a decline by simply having less cases in seniors, that could account for a huge part of the decline in the mortality rate as well. And as you get more and more younger people who have a much lower chance of uh, dying from COVID, uh, that may be doing the shift. But uh, kudos to you for figuring that out. Um, that hospitalization, um, hospital mortality rate was as high as 23%, I think, in the spring. Uh, last I checked, I didn't look at the reports last night. Sorry, Christine. It was 18.1%. So there's a new report out probably today, but it is declining. And I'm going to, I gave a lot of information, Christine, but do you have anything else to add to that? Because this is a, one of my favorite topics. No, you just did a really good job. So um, I, I just want to refer you, though, to the, the mortality report that's that's uh, publicly available, uh, posted under the EPI reports. It's updated um, weekly, and that does break down um, our mortality rates in, in, in several different ways, which I think you'll be interested in looking at. And I think um, um, all of the things you mentioned, uh, David, I think are, are impacting that case fatality rate. And I, and I, the one that I was waiting to add, but then you went ahead and did it was that, you know, um, uh, you know, things are much different now, uh, given, um, vaccination uptake given the um, uh, medical countermeasures or antivirals, uh, uh, monoclonals uh, that we have available. And then one of the big factors, uh, which you also mentioned, is 25, nearly 23% of our cases are school-aged children. Uh, so uh, all of those cases right. are, in that, are in that denominator, and they do really well. Uh, thank goodness. Children do really well. So here in New Mexico, we've had a uh, few hospitalizations and thank goodness, uh, I, I believe six, uh, six deaths in, in, that, in that age group, all uh, and each one uh, an absolute tragedy, but thank goodness uh, that this virus does, does not uh, uh, typically cause uh, severe illness and, and death in, in, that, in those younger age bands. Um, so yeah, I yeah. think you already covered everything. Yeah, that was great. Those are two really good ads. And I'm just going to share my screen. Can you see a graph now, everybody? This, Steve, this is the one you want to look at that Christine just re referred to. It's the mortality report. And this is probably the graphs. It's it's not the uh, percentage of or the uh, probability of death or the death rates, uh, but it, it's not the case fatality rate, but it's the number of deaths. And you can see back here where... Uh, gosh, over 500 deaths just of seniors last year at this time, how that would, and, the, and on other older age groups, all these age groups have a higher mortality rate. So I think that that could be part of what's going on. And of course you ignore December because we're only a week in with data. So anyway, great question. I love it when uh, 
people ask about uh, math questions. And speaking of math questions, uh, Matt, I think Julia Goldberg is next. Is that right? <laughs> she absolutely is. Julia, you're next, followed by Jared Ebenreck, followed by Algernon Damasa. Julia, you are unmuted. Uh, thanks, Matt. This is Julia Goldberg with the Santa Fe Reporter. Um, I notice what seems to me uh, to be kind of a widening chasm between, in some counties, between the first, the, the first and the second uh, COVID shot. So, particularly, Santa Fe County is the one I keep my eye on the most. We have ninety-nine percent of um, people eighteen and older with um, the first shot, but only eighty-five percent with the second shot, and that's a real contrast. If you look at like Los Alamos County, is another county that has ninety-nine uh, percent uh, for the first, and then ninety-two point seven percent for a second shot. And so, um, and I sent you my spreadsheet um, in case I had done all my math wrong, but I don't know if you looked at it or not. Um, but so, uh, the three counties that have sort of the biggest chasm are Santa Fe County, San Juan, and Cibola. And I guess I just was wondering a couple of things about that. One being, I don't, I don't think I have the, the data, and I wasn't even sure what to ask for to say like, is that chasm widening to the point that the people who had their first shot are months, months and months ago? But I guess my questions were sort of, if you got a first shot and then you never got a second shot, if you go four months later to get your second shot, is it effectively your first shot? I mean, does that waning immunity kind of count for that first shot as well? Um, and, and then my second question was, do you think there's a correspondence between some of these counties that have a big gap between the first and the second with case, case counts going up? And then I guess my just general question was, respond to this thing that I have noticed. Um, so I'll stop talking now. Thank you. Yeah, you know, Julia, as usual, you're kind of like caught up with us. Uh, we had this conversation with the governor this morning. We do know from our data um, that about 5.7% of people will never get the follow-up vaccine, but that still leaves a big gap. And so we're in the process of drilling into that. Now, remember, we are seeing an uptick in new vaccinations. I think between the publicity around the boosters, the uh, threat of Omicron, to be honest, and other things, we saw a big surge in initial vaccines, particularly in harder to reach groups, Latinx, African-Americans. We've seen more, a higher percentage increase in those groups over the past four weeks than we'd seen in quite some time. So that's, so some of the people so the, the gap consists of, number one, people who just aren't going to simply follow up. Number two, it's gonna, it consists of people who uh, are just waiting their 21 to 30 days to get their second shot. But then there's an unknown group that I, I'm sure is there that I think we need to know more about. And uh, uh, But I, I look at that total, and expect, it's been about 10% uh, between the the it's 87.3 today. Hold on, let me just do this, make it easier. I always just imagine that everyone's looking at what I'm looking at, which of course you're not. So, uh, and uh, let me make this bigger maybe. So here and here is the gap you're talking about. And so I did, we're gonna do some more analysis on that. I don't think we're aware of county level coronation correlations in the width of the gap, but uh, that's something we're gonna be working on this week. I just got that assignment this morning. I haven't even had a chance to tell Laura and her team yet. Uh, 
But any other ideas, Laura or uh, or uh, <clears throat> Christine on that? So we have been tracking that data. Um, I can share, I'll have to look for it and share the data on the gap that you're talking about between people who don't get their first and second doses. I don't have it broken up in a graph by county, but in general, it is hovering around 10% of people um, who are not going to get their second dose. I think we can just encourage people. It's okay if they, you know, got their first dose and it's been past the, you know, the time that they normally would have gotten, which is like three weeks for uh, Pfizer, four weeks for Moderna. You have a grace period of 42 days, but CDC says that even if you pass that grace period, you should still just go ahead and get your second dose. You really do need your second dose to get fully, you know, the full vaccination protection, and then then you can wait, you know, the six months to get your booster. But um, that's that's what I saw on the CDC website. But um, yeah, I mean, it's the ideal is to get it within the the period of 42 days grace period to be fully effective. I don't know if Christine has anything else to say about that or David, but um, yeah, we are. It's, it's kind of and it's been nationwide where it's just this persistent gap, but. We would just encourage people to get that second dose and then after that, their booster. Thanks everybody. Next we'll turn to Jared Ebenreck, followed by Algernon Damasa, followed by Chris McKee. And Jared, you are unmuted. All right, hopefully you can hear me. Yes, sir. Yeah, wonderful, thank you. Thank you so much for the time. Um, I wanted to follow up on a question I had asked uh, the last time around the traveling nurse market, the staff shortages. And it's a, it, it was really triggered by what I thought was an enlightening um, piece of information, if I have it right, that Dr. Scrace uh, shared, which is that the state has asked FEMA to change its reimbursement rates for, um, I maybe you can even help me understand that, for nurses and staff nurses that are working through COVID units. And FEMA said no. And it left me with a question of then what is New Mexico doing with other states or the federal government to try to address the untenable market of travel workers at this time? I've heard nurses say to me, we are going to be facing a national reckoning because of this market. Yeah, if you think what you've heard is bad, you should live with my wife. I'm not suggesting that, but... The, you know, nurses in New Mexico are really upset about the fact the travelers are coming in and making twice as much as they are. Uh, I think a couple things I would say, because I'm really concerned about this too. Uh, we continue to explore with FEMA if there are other ways to do this. Bringing in staff is one way to do this, uh, but it it doesn't, you know, necessarily make the the income discrepancy that you're talking about. Uh, any better. A second comment I have is that it is a private market. Okay. And so we don't have the ability to tell almost anybody other than the small number of DOH hospital-like facilities um, what to pay nurses. It's a, it's a market for that. And the market isn't working. You know, I tend to think of government should only intervene uh, you know, when the market isn't working, but I don't, we don't have a lot of good ideas about what we can do, uh, you know, to, to regulate this per se. It's, you know, we're not, we're spending federal dollars to bring in 
female workers to help, but we don't have the ability to get those federal federal dollars sent to us so that we can just give them to hospitals to raise nursing salaries. Um, I think the other thing is that this is up. Another thing I might've mentioned last week is that generally the economy is doing pretty well and we have a much more significant nursing shortage in good economies than in tough economies. And so there's a much bigger nursing supply because lots of nurses uh, can come back, work a couple shifts or come back and work full time if their family needs the income because other earners in the family haven't, uh, you know, have lost their jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So, but I don't, I don't think this is one we have a clear solution for. We talked about it at the mat. Uh, other, we can't actually talk with uh, our private partners about what they're paying for nurses in a meeting, really, because uh, there's the Sherman Antitrust Act and what people are paying people is uh, not something that they're allowed to discuss with our competitors. So it is a real dilemma. And I don't feel like I have any more of a solution this week than I did last week. We are hoping to set up a meeting with FEMA. There are some loopholes where if hospitals want to give bonuses, they can. But the problem is that those bonuses have to be, have been part of their policies before the pandemic started. So that at least that's what we've been told. So. I think it's a really important question. I feel badly I don't have a better answer. Uh, my wife was talking to me about this issue uh, the last thing before we went to sleep last night, and it was the last thing we were talking about when I left uh, the uh, home this morning to come up to the office. And so it, it's an issue, but we're we're trying to figure out what the key is and what the lock is that might free up resources to address this. I think at this point, I think uh, asking the federal government to take a position on this or a stand on this or uh, and that there might be something there where we could direct to the White House and to FEMA both, you know, request that they really address this and come up with a better solution than the solution we have now, which is we can do anything we want that was within people's policies before the pandemic started. So I will make a note of that and, and send that off later today. Thank you. Uh, next, we will turn to Algernon Damasa, followed by Chris McKee, followed by Ryan Botel. Algernon, you are unmuted. Thank you, doctors. Um, one dimension of this that we've talked less about is um, uh, COVID-19 infections followed by prolonged um, health conditions, so-called long COVID. Um, that affects employability and the economy. It also um, affects demand for healthcare and, and other services. So I'm wondering if um, either HSD or the health department is one, even able to really track uh, long COVID as a proportion of our cases and, uh, and and if so, then uh, overall impact and what is needed to respond. Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. And I just assumed I would have a way better answer for this by now than I had during the summer. And I'm gonna ask uh, my, my partners here to back me up on this one because 
I think when we were talking about this a lot in March and April, and you remember the NIH allocated something like $1.1 billion, it was like a really a lot of money. I was kind of surprised, but, uh, you know, the early literature, you know, coming out on that, we still don't have a medical profession or society clearly defined set of criteria for long COVID. I know the World Health Organization, uh, they're calling it uh, a post-COVID-19 condition, which sounds more medical than long uh, COVID. And uh, that is available on the World Health Organization website. But as far as research into the characteristics of the people uh, uh, that meet the criteria, what treatments have been tried, there's been intermittent, usually non-peer-reviewed papers online about getting the vaccine or getting a booster helps some of them. But I just think the science is really early. uh, Typically, we're, uh, you know, to get like a treatment recommendation based on a randomized uh, clinical trial, uh, first, obviously requires a uniform case definition. Then they have to recruit all the different usually academic health centers treating uh, post-COVID-19 condition uh, using these criteria, then they have to set up the study and get the results. So I imagine we might have more for you in the summer, but I said something similar, you know, six to nine months ago. Uh, Christine, any thoughts? No, I I think you covered that well. Um, Just the we're still trying to define and really understand post-COVID conditions. So it's really in that realm of uh, uh, research uh, researchers and not really um, uh, sitting with um, uh, public health folks. Um, uh, we do try to track um, one post-COVID condition uh, known as MISC, uh, multi-system inflammatory sis- uh, syndrome um, in children. Yeah, but that's very difficult. But as um, David uh, mentioned, we do have a case definition for that. Um, you can go to the CDC website. All states uh, um, are trying to conduct surveillance on this and report cases. So this is rolled up uh, by the CDC. Uh, but again, it's it's quite different. It's it's very difficult. Um, but I think the broader question of of uh, post-COVID conditions, which is very broad, ill-defined, very poorly understood. Um, um, one other thing I would add is that uh, we know the best way to avoid uh, post-COVID conditions is to avoid COVID, which is by getting vaccinated. And thank goodness, most people who are infected by this virus, um, most people do recover, recover. Um, though exactly what proportion end up with, with one of these post-COVID conditions? That's an excellent question and um, not one that I think we can really answer yet. Yeah, and uh, Eljadon, I did put the link to the WHO uh, case definition paper if you're uh, like taking a one month leave of absence from your job or something like that and have time to read through it. It's actually, it's only 27 pages and it's not really that bad, but it's uh, it's a proposed definition that still hasn't had the uptake yet that it's gonna need to uh, allow it to be fully used in research. But thanks for that question. And we haven't talked about that in a long time and I think it's good to bring it up again. 
Thanks, everybody. Next, we'll turn to Chris McKee, followed by Ryan Botel, followed by Ryan Laughlin. Chris, you're unmuted. All right. Hello, hello. Thank you for being here today. Uh, Chris McKee here at KRQE News 13. Um, along the lines of looking into the future of you know long COVID, this is though kind of a um, question about booster shots in, in terms of the future. Seeing the emphasis we've placed on that booster shot now, would you see the possibility of the public maybe needing to get booster shots every six months, every year, kind of like a flu shot? Um, Kind of the, the question came up, I think, as we continue to see high case loads and um, those concerns about breakthrough infections. So wanting to see if perhaps y'all have an idea of how to speculate about, about that kind of, is this a new norm? Should we think about there's a possibility maybe we get COVID vaccinations every year or every six months? I don't know. Thank you. So this is like the number one topic that Christine and I wrestle with, like, and debate with each other. And just to be fair, I'm going to let her go first this time so she doesn't have to feel obligated to, uh, you know, agree with me. And uh, I think there's sort of two points of view, though, and there's a couple variables. Um, but the two points of view are, could it be that this third shot will really be the last dose of a three-shot series that will give more immunity? Or... Could it be that we're going to evolve into influenza-like approach to COVID uh, with an annual vaccine? So, Christine, you go first. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think it's an excellent question, and I always have to give my disclaimer that I'm not an immunologist. I don't pretend to be, and I'm, and I, I so I really don't feel qualified uh, to even speculate on this. But I, I think that we we can most likely expect uh, that that this will um, that that we won't be done um, after three shots. I can imagine that this will be uh, there will be a, a regular frequency that. We'll, we'll need to get um, uh, immunization, uh, might be similar to the flu. Um, I think we have to get, um, we have to allow some time to elapse after um, we get uh, more boosters into arms and, and, and follow that closely. I do think the real wild card here is uh, the fact that a large um, proportion of the globe is still not vaccinated. So when, when we talk about inequities, if you, you look at the way uh, uh, vaccines are being distributed globally, um, uh, it's, it's uh, um, uh, very, very frustrating um, because what, uh, what is happening around the globe is, is it affects all of us. And so um, if we don't get more people vaccinated around the globe, um, we're gonna continue to see, um, see new variants uh, emerge. Uh, and so as a new variants emerge, these are the wild cards um, that, um, uh, you know, could certainly impact um, um, uh, progress made by our vaccination efforts to date. So I think there's still a lot of unknowns, uh, but I, I do think that's a, a great question. And it's it's likely that we, we will uh, see ourselves needing a regular uh, COVID shot like the flu. Um, but the exact timing and frequency of that, I, I'm, I don't feel I can even venture a guess. Yeah, and I think I would probably just add that um, one of the reasons that um, we get an annual flu shot 
is because flu only occurs in the winter and flu, the flu vaccine, like I think we think we get our annual flu shot and we're protected for a year. Totally wrong. I mean, we're protected for like four or five, six months. The effect of the vaccine wears off, but there's no influenza in the summer. And so uh, we're okay for the most part. I have one of my kids got influenza B actually. I remember it was in August. I can't, I think it might've been this year in August, got influenza B and, you know, he's in his forties and he had the flu shot the previous year. So good example. Uh, I think, you know, we need to crowd uh, <clears throat> coronavirus infections all into the winter months, which I'm, I, I would vote for that. I would give us some, you know, we could catch up on our other work during the whole summer if that happened. And I think though, the other thing that really is, has to be solved as well is if the mortality rate uh, for uh, the case fatality rate for coronavirus is uh, 12 times higher than influenza, that's another really big problem because like another reason we can get by with the influenza vaccine once a year and just tolerate some cases, it's, it's a very, very low case fatality rate. And you might think 1.6% seems really, really low to you too. But uh, I guess the way I always think about that is if you were flying on an airplane and the pilot got out and said, I just want you to know that statistically we've got like a 98.3% chance of getting to our destination today, you know, would you get off the plane? And so, uh, so that's a high case fatality rate for the things we're used to dealing with. And then the hospital mortality rate is way higher than any other real disease we deal with in the hospital. Uh, but hopefully as the pandemic, um, you know, spreads out a little bit or dies down a little bit, that'll take the pressure off the hospital. So I think, I don't think we know exactly yet. I was asked that uh, by a national news outlet a couple of weeks ago. And I said, Call me again in March. And, you know, now that we're, we know about the signals we can see in our own data about vaccine breakthrough, we will be glued to that data on that booster, you know, vaccine booster breakthrough. And uh, I think we, we had a pretty early warning this time when we started talking to the feds, but uh, we will, uh, we're geared up to uh, know when that curve starts to go up again. And can I just mention something too about that? I think it's just also, you know, um, just, you know, once again, thanking like New Mexico for being open and willing to adapt as we navigate to how we live with COVID because we don't really know the science is developing. And so we're just trying to figure out, you know, when we get the science, then we take an action. And, and you know, I just think it's been great that New Mexicans have stepped up to take in the booster when we get that data. So just kind of mentioning that piece. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, everybody. Next, we will turn to Ryan Botel, followed by uh, Ryan Laughlin. Ryan, you are unmuted. Thank you. Thanks, doctors, for taking our questions. This is Ryan Botel at the Albuquerque Journal. Um, Dr. Scrace, you showed uh, a data earlier today on the breakthrough cases that showed that 25 to 39-year-olds were the most likely to have a breakthrough case. Um, I was wondering what factors uh, everybody in the panel thinks might be leading to that, and if that data is different 
than the age groups that were more likely to get COVID a year ago before there was a vaccine. Thank you. Yeah, uh, well, I'll start. And Laura, if you could look up the vaccination rates by age, I know you have that in your uh, report. We, you can address that part, Christine, as well. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is that uh, <clears throat> I don't think that that younger age group feels as constrained by public health orders as perhaps older age groups do. We struggled to try to get accurate data on masking. We never figured out a good way to do it. We didn't think putting up cameras and uh, as a government surveillance uh, technique was a good idea at all. We thought that was a bad idea, so we didn't do that. But uh, I think that uh, younger people feel less constrained. Uh, some of our contact tracing data showed they had more contacts, went to more places, uh, you know, and colleges and uh, other places and colleges have stepped up and required vaccination. But uh, I mean, that's just my really, really high level uh, point of view on that. I think vaccination rates in that age group are, are lower than most age groups, except the people younger than them. But Laura, do you want to address that? And then we'll go to Christine. Yeah, I'm just going to actually pull up. Is it okay if I just pull up sure. the data? <laughs> kind of small, so I hope people can see this. Um, can people see this on the slide? It's kind of small, but I'll... We can see that there's something on the slide. <laughs> okay, can you guys see that? It's a little bit better. So this goes on uh, the age groups and their um, doses, um, how much of the percent of the population receiving um, vaccine, uh, at least one dose, and then fully vaccinated. So the age group 25 to 39-year-old group is 63 is it 63.7% vaccinated? So you can see like each age group like is successively mostly just, you know, hovering around 60. Yeah, that's a 63.7% fully vaccinated rate. That's pretty good. Um, and then the percent of that group that got boosted was about 14.9%. Um, yeah, so you can see that we're actually doing pretty good for that age group. Comparatively, but you know, if you compare it to 65 plus year olds, which is the group that David's like, those people went out and got their vaccines. They really did. 91.6 are fully vaccinated with 53.6 boosted. So I hope you could see that. But that's thanks, Sarah. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I heard the original uh, question. And um, I, I don't think that. Um, a vaccine breakthrough rate in 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 a high vaccine breakthrough rate uh, in that younger age band represents a failure of the vaccine. Yeah. I think, as others just mentioned, it's it's um, uh, more likely uh, your the the opportunity uh, for exposures or number of exposures um, that that age band uh, experiences. Um, if you have uh, if you're vaccinated and um, uh, you stay at home uh, and you don't go out, um, you're, you're, you're never going to be a vaccine breakthrough case. <laughs> and, I, and forgive me for really simplifying this or oversimplifying it. Uh, but uh, if you are out and about and you have a lot of exposures, um, you're certainly going to increase your risk 
to to be what we call a breakthrough case. Um, but again, um, uh, uh, the vaccine isn't um, the primary goal of the vaccination program is is to prevent uh, severe illness and death um, uh, amongst people uh, infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Uh, so um, we know that those younger age bands uh, do well, uh, especially when vaccinated. Um, uh, hospitalization rates are, are lower, uh, deaths are lower. Um, but I think it's an in interesting observation from our surveillance data when you, you look at the vaccine breakthrough rate by age. Uh, but again, um, uh, um, more likely uh, related to uh, characteristics of that age band and um, a number of exposures uh, and opportunity uh, that they come across uh, to to uh, possibly be uh, uh, infected and then ultimately be a breakthrough case. Uh, I think I'll stop there. And I hope that that was the actual original question. <laughs> okay, thanks everybody. Next we'll turn to Ryan Laughlin. Ryan, you are unmuted. Thank you so much. Uh, my question is kind of twofold and it kind of one goes into the other, but uh, on, on Omicron, I know a lot is unknown, but the uh, severity of the disease, we know what, from what we know about viruses, they want to spread, they want to evolve. Does, does that mean there's a likelihood that Omicron is less severe it leads to less severe illness that uh that you know this as this virus moves that we're going to keep seeing uh it may, maybe being more contagious but, but you know less severity of putting people in, in hospitals in, in a bad situation the nfl doctor just said today that they're seeing omicron but they're thinking it's going to lead to to less severe disease and is that something that we can extrapolate from what we've seen from past variants or not and that kind of leads me to my next question is at what point, it seems clear that there's not going to be a, a victorious day when we have an end to the pandemic, uh, but is there a day where we eventually say, you know, it's raining outside, here's where you get your free umbrella, and it's on the people whether or not they want to protect themselves or not. Um, I, I don't know. What do you have to say about the, the seriousness of, of Omicron and what we can extrapolate from the data at this point, and at what point is this no longer a public emergency when we have the tools that we need to fight against this. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, let's do them one at a time. And uh, uh, Ryan, you kind of snuck in and under the one question rule, but we'll make an exception for you today. Uh, I think it's really dangerous to assume that just because the virus has evolved, that it's less dangerous. Like that is not necessarily the experience of other viruses and the previous influenza pandemic of 1918 was a, a mutation of a virus that had been much milder beforehand. So I don't, I'm not with, and like, I think there's a really optimistic part of me that wants to be on the side of the NFL doctor and go, yeah, boy, I sure hope that the virus, it doesn't like killing people because, you know, then, then they can't spread the virus to other people. But I think it's premature. And what I would like to, if you might remember, there were early reports that Delta was more severe. Now, we didn't see that in New Mexico. We didn't see higher hospitalization rates or higher death rates with Delta than, than Alpha, than previous ones. So uh, I think that would be premature to just infer just because it's mutated, it's going to be uh, milder. And 
as I think Christine mentioned last week, or maybe we said it this week too, that, you know, these, a lot of the places we're reading about this, Cornell University, South Africa, these are outbreaks in younger people. So uh, they're going to have much less severe disease anyway. And I, so I think it's too early to tell. Christine, uh, what do you think? Um, yeah, I, I, yes, I think it's too early to tell, but I, I, I do uh, agree that um, the anecdotal reports um, um, out of South Africa, their early data, um, uh, data from the UK, um, there are indications that the uh, clinical um, uh, uh, spectrum of disease appears to be milder. So we, we surely hope that that, do, that does end up being the case. Um, uh, with this variant, but it's really too too early to say uh, definitively. And then I think um, you're. Should we move to the second question? I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Okay. And then and then I think the second question was more what what's what's the end game? And that's that's it's so so complicated. Um, but I think. Um, uh, we're not near the end game when our healthcare delivery system is being completely overwhelmed and is in has to declare crisis standards of care. Uh, so e even though we're we're so far into this and we've we've made so many advancements uh, with with the the availability of uh, three really safe and highly effective vaccines, all of the uh, antivirals, monoclon monoclonal antibodies, um, how, you know, all, all we've learned about how to manage the, the disease, um, how, all we've learned about how to avoid getting infected. Um, we've come so, so far, um, but we're still not there. Um, and I would say the, the one indication that we know we're not there is when we, we look at the healthcare delivery system. So uh, we are not in, in any way um, into a um, sort of a stabilized uh, state uh, with this pandemic. And so it's, it's unfortunate that we're this far and we're, we're, we're still struggling uh, to manage the volume uh, of, of people who have to present to the emergency room for care because they're, they're, they're so very ill. So let me pause there, see if you have yeah. more to add. I was just going to add too, like, I think it's possible to just leave it up to everybody to decide if they want to be protected or not uh, for some things. Uh, it is kind of the system we have right now, other than the indoor mask mandate, there are no other restrictions on people, people's travels back to pre-pandemic levels, their interaction with others in general is back to pre-pandemic levels. And so I think the problem with the theory is it's an infectious disease. And so, uh, I mean, you might, like if you're having somebody over for dinner at your house and they had just come down with the bubonic plague, you know, you might suggest that they postpone that visit, you know, to some other time and actually, frankly, go to the emergency room immediately. Uh, and so I think with an infectious disease, there are public health consequences that is kind of like uh, a large, a huge part of why the Department of Health exists. And, and actually Laura and Christine's jobs is, centers around the fact that there's the issue of the public's health, not just our own individual health. And so, and, and I couldn't agree more about the current state of our hospitals we forget that or the individual consequences of the fact 
that, you know, if one of us had a heart attack right now, uh, there, there probably would be a delay in EMS getting to us compared to two years ago. Probably wouldn't be an ICU bed for us, you know, and depending on where we are, but really not depending on where we are. So I think if the system was not completely overwhelmed, I sort of feel like we're doing the experiment you're suggesting and it's not working at all at, right now. And if you talk to anyone from a hospital, they'll say the same. I think it's an important question. Like another way of saying the question is, well, when would we get to the point where it would just be people would be on their own? And I, you know, believe me, if we get a variant that has a case fatality rate of, you know, 0.15% and, you know, it's a seasonal thing now, we have a, you know, a different booster every year to cover it. Like, I'm not going to be uh, having any good, I, I'm not going to be thinking uh, that the state needs to intervene anymore. But right now we just do. And But the only thing we're doing really is the individual, uh, is the indoor mask mandate at this point in time in terms of regulations. And then certain vaccine requirements for high-risk individuals who have a lot of contact with the public. Um, and the only hard requirement is for uh, healthcare workers working in congregate, in, in like healthcare facilities and congregate settings. And then we have a uh, requirement for vaccine or testing for teachers and uh, for state employees. Again, people with very, very high contact in the community. So, um, and you know, frankly, I think a year or two from now, you won't be able to get a job in healthcare without completing your COVID vaccine, you know, series in the first couple of months. All of the three of us who've ever worked for healthcare system, you know, got a very thorough review of our vaccines and made sure we were up to date on all of them. And if we weren't, we had to get the extra ones. And and that that debt COVID will be uh, almost certainly added to that list. So um, I think that's sort of a permanent part uh, for things. Thanks. Long answer, but there was two questions in our defense. Thanks, everybody. So let's start round two. If you'd like to ask another question, now's a great time to raise your hand. And I'm going to get started and just assume that there might be some additional hands coming. Uh, we'll start with Steve Edmondson, followed by Julia Goldberg, followed by Ryan Botel. Steve, you are unmuted. All right. Um, well, I was looking at, uh, we, we talked about the rates, and I, and I have looked at the epidemiology reports. And uh, one of the things I looked up was the hospitalizations. And uh, with children, uh, there's been 60,000 hospitalizations, uh, or excuse me, 60,526 cases. That's the latest epidemiology report. And of that, 345 of those under 18 have been hospitalized. And the lowest group out of that whole group is the 5 to 11-year-olds. There's only been 67 hospitalizations out of that group. So that's like a 0.3%. So uh, my, my question again, and, the, and you know, the case fatality rate is like one in 10,000 uh, deaths. So I, I'm still having trouble understanding why we're not doing more to separate. And then, then when you look at the over 65, I mean, nationally, they're, I mean, over 50 is 93, 94% of the deaths. And it just seems like we our policies are not geared more toward separating out the groups because if you're under 30 nationally even or even 40 is i mean that's 2.5 percent of the deaths are those under 40 uh and they're 53.7 percent of the uh, cases 
So I'm just under, I'm trying to have a hard time understanding nationally why we're not doing more uh, policy-wise to separate out those different groupings based on the risk, because the risk is so much different from somebody that is over 65 as compared to somebody that's under 18. Yeah. 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 You know, it's a good question. I think if you have a way to keep all the age groups segregated from each other and never have any contact, your point would be really strong. The problem with kids is not that they get sick and end up in the hospital. It's that they have the same ability to transmit COVID, uh, to get it and transmit it to, you know, their grandparents or people in those other age groups. So uh, uh, I think that, I think that we're not, uh, you know, one of the things about public health is uh, we can't just isolate individual age groups and tell them not to interact. Kind of remember, like we talked about before counties, we would do things at a county level, but those people went to another county. It's the same with age groups. They interact, they spread COVID, they get disease. And so that's why, that's really the answer to your question. If they never interacted and nobody ever saw their grandparents ever again, which would just want to say would be really bad for the grandparents, you know, uh, maybe that could work, but that's the reason why. Well, can I make, uh, did, have you looked at the Swedish study of their school children? Uh, the under 16, they had uh, 10th graders stayed at home and everybody down went to school. And there's really no difference in the seriousness risk of serious disease among those groups. They did, they did not uh, wear masks from what I understand about the study or they actually discouraged it. And the teachers were more, no more likely than just the general public to get COVID. And it would seem that, that if, if children were major spreaders, then the teachers would have been at high risk. And my understanding is that, that children don't spread it. They do spread it, but not at the same rate that adults do. And, and it's more likely yeah. that, a, that a child gets it from an adult than, a than an adult from a child. Yeah, your understanding is completely different than ours and the science we have available to us. If you want to drop the link in, we're always happy to look at new papers, but um, about a year ago, I think the definitive evidence came out that uh, kids get it, spread it, uh, just as exactly equal to adults. So uh, go ahead and drop in the link and, and then let's uh, uh, go from there. Thanks everybody. Uh, next we'll turn to Julia Goldberg, followed by Ryan Votel. And then I'm gonna actually ask some questions on behalf of another reporter who's uh, not in attendance today. Uh, Julia, you are unmuted. Uh, thanks, Matt. I had another uh, future prediction question, I guess. Um, last year when the for the vaccine anniversary, I think I had an expectation that there would be fewer deaths in 2021 than there were in 2020. Um, and there have not been. There's been more in New Mexico and I, I think more in the U.S. overall. So I guess I'm wondering, well, I'm wondering, firstly, if you also thought there would be fewer deaths, but deaths this year, but also if you think there will be fewer deaths next year. Thanks. Well, Julia, as usual, I haven't been wondering about that, but it's a great question. Uh, I would start with the fact that we really only had about nine months of COVID in 2020 and and more, you know, 12 months, actually. We're going on 12 months now in a couple of weeks. In this year, I will look at the case counts, too, because, you know, while we have that giant, giant mound of cases uh, that really dwarfs uh, a belief. And let me share it um, uh, from Christine's slide. 
Um, and let me figure out how to get this bigger. Um, and then let me figure out how to get rid of the pictures of my colleagues. Okay, there we go. So, uh, you know, this looks like, oh, this, oh, we had all these deaths last year. But then if you look really closely, this was the beginning of this year. And, uh, and so, and then this, we had this nice period here and then this longer period here. So I think it's kind of a combination of the fact that this is really the start of this year and these numbers, but we'll look at it at the end of the year. And uh, we can actually look at the deaths by calendar year and see, uh, see what we come up with it. But I would agree with you if I squint at this, Graph. It looks like a, there would be a few more deaths. Yeah, I counted it already. I mean, we've already had more. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, yeah. I don't know if what I expected. I think we've had more cases this year than last year, and uh, we've had more treatments, which should have brought the number of deaths down. So, um, I don't know, Christine. You guys have a thought on that, or Laura, from a mortality report perspective. Stop yeah, I think that if you look by um, um, vaccination rates, well, let me back up. Uh, when I look at the number of long uh, deaths among long-term care uh, residents, there was there's been a profound reduction. So, in in some of our most vulnerable groups, as the prior um, reporter was just uh, mentioning, um, folks over 65, over 75. Uh, the risk of, of death um, from this um, from infection uh, of the, by this virus is, is much much higher than uh, younger age bands. So my just preliminary uh, look at this data, you see this vast reduction in deaths among these older age bands where there's high vaccination uh, uptake. So for me, that that's been a, a, a huge. Um, uh, change uh, that I've noted when looking through that data. Um, I do think uh, we need to follow this out for the rest of the year. I think we are going to have to factor in, um, you know, uh, the uh, impact of the original virus or, or, or the uh, ancestral strain when that hit, uh, followed by uh, when, when we had a surge um, um, uh, with uh, Delta. So, and then uh, any impending or uh, future surges we may have related to uh, variants. I think all of these things combined uh, impa may impact what we end up seeing um, with our with our death rates. But I, I think um, you're asking for a comparison of, of this year to last, and I'm, I'm, I guess I think we'll need a little bit more time to look at that and try to um, break that down um, and readdress that. I think. Do you think next year it's likely we'll have fewer deaths than this year? Well, I think what I was trying to allude to, maybe not so eloquently, um, I, I, I don't know what the future holds with, with various um, introduction or emerging variants. And I don't know what the future holds with um, 
uh, vaccine effectiveness against future variants. So I think there are some unknowns that make it a little bit difficult to predict uh, what will we see related to mortality moving forward. Um, I think it's an excellent question, um, but I'm not really certain um, what we will see over time. And I just want to add too, it's also up to us as individuals and communities, right, to see how many people do get vaccinated because despite the Omicron coming and, you know, the, the, the vaccines and the booster still, you know, prevent you from getting sick and dying, right? So, you know, really sick and dying, you can get like Christine said, like a, like a little cold or something like that, or it's not that bad. So I, I do think a lot of this also has to do with, you know, how we can build the trust and, and get vaccine out to people who do want it, make it easier for them. And that's part of the reason why we're doing the FEMA mobile buses. So trying to, you know, figure out ways to get, get to people and also, you know, get them access and also build trust so that people can get the facts that they need to make decisions. Thank you. Great. So I'm going to actually jump in here and ask uh, some questions on behalf of Jesus from Introvision, only because he's not here and hasn't had a chance to ask uh, questions for himself just yet. And then we'll jump back into the regular sequence. And I'm going to bunch them all together because they all deal with Omicron. These are going to be in Spanish, and then I'm going to direct them to Laura. And then we'll uh, we'll jump back into the sequence I announced previously. So here they are. ¿Cómo fue detectado el caso de Omicron? ¿Cuántas de las personas que estuvieron en contacto con el paciente se encuentran en aislamiento preventivo? ¿Qué medidas se van a tomar para evitar que esta variable se propague en nuestro estado? ¿Cuántos casos se han confirmado? ¿Cuántos efectivos son los anticuerpos y vacunas contra esta variante? Y cualquier otra información de interés. Okay. So you just want me to answer all those questions in order? In Spanish, please. In yeah. Spanish, okay. Because I think bueno. we've covered most of that information in English already. I want to make sure our Spanish reporters get the same info. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bueno, um, entonces el Omicron fue detectado por la, la, el laboratorio de Universidad de Nuevo México. Entonces hay varios laboratorios en, en el estado que, que hacen secuencia genómica, creo es la palabra, pero ellos buscan qué tipo de, de variante es. Entonces, la variante de, de Omicron fue detectado así. La persona que estaba, ¿verdad? Que, que fue el primer caso aquí, está en aislamiento. Y voy a preguntar en inglés a mi colega, um, do you know if the person who was in isolation, um, if there were other people that are quarantined with that particular person? That was the question. And I, I know that the actual person was isolated, but I don't know the rest. No. Okay. Entonces, no sabemos quién es más, you know, quién es más de esta persona en su familia fueron en cuarentena, pero... Esta persona está en aislamiento. Entonces, la otra pregunta, ¿qué medidas se van a tomar para evitar que esta variable se propague en nuestro estado? Otra vez, es el, la misma cosa que estamos diciendo todo este tiempo, ¿verdad? Hay, hay cosas muy fáciles que podemos hacer, no importa si es Omicron o si es Delta, ¿verdad? Vacunarse o recibir una vacuna de refuerzo van a ayudar a prevenir que alguien sea 
¿verdad? Muy, muy enfermo o posiblemente van a prevenir la muerte. Uh, siga usando la mascarilla, ¿verdad? Para que no, no, no puede ser infectada más. Lávese las manos regularmente. Evita los grandes grupos, ¿verdad? Practica la distancia social y hágase las pruebas si siente síntomas y quédese en casa cuando esté enfermo. Entonces, siempre es la misma cosa que, que usamos para cualquier, ¿verdad? Para cualquier variante para COVID. Uh, entonces, ¿y cuán efectivos son los anticuerpos y vacunas contra esta variante? Todavía no, todavía no sabemos, pero sigue estudiando este y, y lo más importante es hacer las cosas de prevención de COVID. Y bueno, eh, eh, por favor, cuídense nuestros niños. Uh, especialmente nuestros chiquitos que todavía no pueden ser vacunados y también nuestros ancianos que no pueden tener el mismo verdad habilidad de, de, de luchar contra covid entonces hacer todo este cosas nos van a ayudar nuestra comunidad nuestras familias y la, nuestras personas individuales también I think that's all <laughs> the questions <laughs> there were a lot of questions There were. Thanks so much for covering those. Um, the last hand I see for round two of questions here is from Ryan Botel. So we'll turn to him next. And then I'll just point out that it's almost four, which is typically when we wrap up. So I would request that um, it looks like everybody's had a chance to ask multiple questions. If you have um, pressing questions that you'd really like to ask today, uh, we'll, we'll do one more short round. Uh, otherwise, we'll, we'd like to wrap up relatively soon if we can and let folks get back to their normal duties. Uh, so Ryan, you are unmuted. Hi, thanks again. Um, what do uh, state health experts uh, just model and forecast for the coming weeks in terms of cases, deaths, and hospitalizations? And how does the Omicron variant um, kind of affect how health officials kind of predict the near future? Thank you. That's a great question. and. Uh, We spent a lot of time last week at our modeling team kind of agonizing over Thanksgiving. And you probably are thinking, what could Thanksgiving possibly have to do with the question I just asked? And it actually has everything to do with it. So we can model about four to six weeks into the future, but it's based on the previous data. And there was a giant drop in testing and therefore cases over the Thanksgiving weekend. And so that if you look at the graph, there's this big divot and then it comes back up. That totally messes up our modelers and it takes them several weeks to recover from that. So that's number one. Number two, the modeling for new variants can only be done. We usually model the new variants based on past, um, uh, you know, past uh, performance of the variant, if you will, or the case counts or hospitalizations. We don't have any experience with Omicron. We could, we could go into the model and say, let's just say, if we, we can actually put in Omicron has uh, spreads 1.5 times as rapidly as Delta and has a hospitalization rate that's 25% lower. We could do that, but it's, it's a lot of intensive work for them, and we don't, uh, we don't really want to, uh, you know, we don't. It doesn't turn out to be that useful. So we don't know. That's the answer to your question. And we're also struggling with Thanksgiving. Now, next week, we'll have two weeks of clean data. Won't be good again. 
but that was a little bit of a puzzle uh, last week when the modeling team met. And so uh, uh, I think uh, I think that kind of covers it. I wish we would. Uh, uh, um, I wish we knew more. I wish we had models that could plug in. But they're all based on numbers. They're all based on assumptions about the R effective or spread rate and you know mortality rate and hospitalization rate. And we just don't have any of that for Omicron yet. Thanks. Thank you very much. All right, uh, everybody, uh, we'll open up a brief round three. If you'd like to ask a final question, please raise your hand now. Going once. Okay, thanks so much, everybody. So uh, given that, I'll turn to Dr. Ross, then Dr. Padahon, then Dr. Scrace in that order for some final remarks. No, thank you, everybody. I think the questions were excellent. Um, uh, keeps me on my toes for sure. Uh, always uh, thinking about our data. So, so thank you again for joining us. Um, I, I just want to uh, reemphasize that there's a lot we don't know about this new variant of concern. And uh, at this point in time, I really want to ask all New Mexicans to help us uh, slow uh, slow down uh, the spread of, of uh, the virus that causes uh, uh, COVID-19. And I know the holidays are approaching, and and I want, I want to just uh, suggest that we all reconsider uh, large gatherings, um, reconsider that, uh, think about reducing your, your, uh, your family, uh, your family's risk, your risk, and um, help us slow the spread, uh, given uh, what the hospitals are currently uh, grappling with and the number of people who are, who are becoming ill and continue to die uh, uh, from this infection. Uh, so as always, please get vaccinated if you haven't. Um, please, please seek out a booster shot uh, if you're eligible as soon as possible. Think about avoiding crowds, poorly ventilated uh, places, wear a well-fitted mask, and uh, seek out testing, as, as we've already uh, mentioned. And let me uh, turn that over to Laura. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I think you said everything that I would want to say. I think that just, you know, recognizing that it's a bittersweet moment for us. We're really excited that so many people were vaccinated in, in New Mexico um, compared to other states, but we're also seeing that huge surge in cases. And so really just, um, you know, recognizing the frustration, we are tired of the masks. We are tired of not, you know, hanging out with our friends and family all the time, you know, but yeah, like think about how we can still live with COVID and having a safe holiday, you know, making sure if you, you can get vaccinated and get your booster if you, if you haven't gotten it, and then really trying to wear masks when you hang out with your friends. Like I like David's um, example of, you know, going to a concert and you still get to go to the concert, but it's a little bit different. You're wearing your mask, you know, same with uh, family gathering. Like we, we do have to gather as family. You know, there's a lot of uh, mental health issues now too. Like it's, it's sad not to be with your family and friends, but yeah, wearing a mask, figuring out ways to do this and living with COVID. And um, thanks again for all you're doing. And thanks to all the press to just keep on sharing that message that it is the same thing. I guess it gets tiring you know, to always say, these are the same exact things we just have to keep doing, but just keep on keeping on. And thank you for all we're doing. You guys are doing it. Yeah. It's up to us. Yeah. I think. And I, you all, as usual, said everything I was going to say. So, <laughs> Uh, thanks again to everybody. I would like to do a special call out because it turns out when we ask for help, 
you guys help us. We asked for vaccine sites. We got a bunch of volunteers. Uh, you know, we volunteered their whole school system for vaccine sites. Thank you, Albuquerque Public Schools. Up. Uh, am I frozen here? Mm-mm. Oh, you look good to me. Okay, okay. good. Uh, I guess I would. So the help I'm asking for today is all of you folks, two, two groups. Those of you who have had done annual events and have like businesses, uh, you know, where customers come in, uh, anything you do that involves contacting the public, I'd like to ask all of you to think about what could you do to make your business or concert or whatever it is safer for people uh, so that they feel more comfortable coming in and, you, and we really do redu- reduce the risk of spread, particularly with a new variant coming on board where many of us believe it may spread a little faster. And then for everybody else listening who doesn't run a business or you know, put on a concert or whatever it is, really think about giving feedback to businesses. When you go into a business and you feel safe, give feedback. Like, thank you for making sure everybody has a mask on here. I really appreciate it. I noticed all your employees actually had their masks like covering their nose. You know, I don't see that. You know, I see this a lot, but not that. Thank you for that. I think if business owners get that feedback and then go to places that you feel like will be safe. You know, that's part of the road from where we are to getting back to normal life is sort of being selective and finding those places where people are going out of their way to make them safe and patronizing those things. And, uh, you know, it's probably a little uh, too early to call victory on the concert we attended on summer, on Sunday. I should have waited till next week, but I won't be here for that. But, um, I, you know, I think that's part of it, it too. So everything everyone else said, be safe, find ways to make things safer for yourself and others. I know that we all want to have our own personal freedoms and you know, don't want to be vaccinated, you know, or don't want to wear a mask. Uh, some of us just refuse, but then we feel differently when we have to call 911 and, and we're in the emergency room for two days waiting for a hospital bed. We, have a, we feel we have a right to that kind of service right then. And the two are more connected, I think, than sometimes we realize or think. And so that's just something to think about uh, too, if you're not vaccinated yet, but really are assuming you'll have an ICU bed, there's a disconnect there. You're really assuming the ambulance will come within, you know, 25 to 35 minutes of when you dial 911. Uh, there's an assumption there that uh, doesn't connect. So just food for thought, not really judging anybody, but realizing that those personal freedoms uh, give us, you know, responsibilities to ourselves, to our families and to others. And so, Thanks to, you, to all of you for tuning in. We'll see you again uh, uh, in the coming weeks. There will be some breaks and some change up over the uh, winter holidays here. Definitely uh, aren't planning on a press conference uh, on whatever day of, the, I, could, I should be able to do that on the 29th for sure. We're not planning on that. We may do a little bit shorter Spanish version next week. We'll be back uh, on, likely January 5th on a more regular schedule again uh, to update you. But uh, everybody here needs a break and needs to spend time with their families, well-deserved rest. And uh, you still know how to get a hold of Matt and others 
when you have, and Jody and others, when you need questions answered, and we'll have a way to do that for you as well. So thanks. Have a good day. Be safe. And think about how you can make uh, your community, your world, your business safer for other people you contact. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.